Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Houston. You're listening to a reading group episode of the show, which means that in this episode, I discuss political philosophy with two non-philosopher friends, Adam and Giffen, because philosophy shouldn't just be for philosophers. So with that introduction, please enjoy our discussion of political philosophy. As promised, uh, after the last episode, we are doing the Communist Manifesto or uh, the Manifesto of the Communist Party. So before we start, (laughs) Giffen, how are your shoulders feeling? My shoulders? Because I think you're going to be doing a good bit of the lifting for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I will request a tunnel afterwards, but other than that, I'm good. I... I... (laughs) This podcast doesn't include health insurance. It's not a company <laughs> company yet. So. Uh, I, strange I, labor strikes again. You know, <laughs> I, be prepared to be alienated from your labor over the course of this episode. Yeah. I so I said that because I you know I think I kind of carried the brunt of the work last episode, but I do not think I'm going to be that role this time because honestly. I, I think I understood this text a lot less, to be honest, than the previous really? one. Well, it's not that I understood it less. It's that I, maybe I have a lot more questions. And I don't know if those questions are indicative of me not understanding it or if they're genuinely open questions. That's I, think I, a, I think it depends, though, right? Because like I, what I was going to say before we kind of dive into this was <clears throat> I think parts one, two, and four are yes. all, you know, very good. But part three... I don't even want to touch on part three to be no, honest, because no. just just for the listeners' edification, um, part three is a critique of other models of socialism and social reform at and the time. Yeah, at the time, at the, at, at at the, the worst time, part. exactly. And, and honestly, going through those, he, I didn't feel that, and I could be totally wrong about this, but I didn't feel like that he was very even-handed in explaining <laughs> what those ideas were. And why they were wrong. So I felt it was more of just a straight up critique. So I never kind of knew it exactly. Okay, what are we critiquing exactly in each of these? It wasn't that clear. Absolutely. No, I have like notes in part three, but it's really the bulk of it's going to be like one and two. And then like the final page is just like a single page, I think. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I I totally agree. I I literally didn't have a single note from section three because I just I honestly couldn't. It was too it was like filled with jargon of like factions at the time. And and it just, it really seemed antiquated at this point. Yeah. My only interesting, like, well, we can get there perhaps, but I made a note about like what was, what it was in Marx's view constituting social democracy or so Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting kind of observation. But other other Mm -hmm. than that, like we can honestly skip it over. It's, it's really, really aged. Was that, was that the petty bourgeois section right there? (laughs) Um, I honestly, which was more of the uh, social uh, democracy. I don't, I had like a question mark in one of the places. I'm like, it sounds like he's critiquing social democracy, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And then they they later, later section. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think that was his critique of petty bourgeois socialism. I I think that was it. It's that sounds about right. Honestly, like the section three is the one I'm least concerned about. We, we um, just okay we're not we're not gonna yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll okay uh in in way of introductory remarks i mean i'll tip my hat in the sense that again almost with a strange labor i thought that marx did a really a pretty overall decent job of identifying some gritty some pretty grave problems 
But then as soon as he turns to his kind of proposed solutions, he really starts to lose me there. And I don't know, he, <clears throat> I mean, okay, I'll, I'll give just like a very, very brief summary maybe, and then we can dig into it. And then also, I mean, if I get anything wrong with this, let me know because yeah, this I might actually be indicative. might have some clarifying comments. Um, okay. I was, I did feel much more at home with this um, than a strange labor. So I took him, I, honestly, I'm only going to talk about section one and two, because those are like the main, you know, kind of proposals. So it, I took him in section one to be either bordering on or explicitly looking at all of history through a materialist reductionism. So he's kind of reducing all of history to what he calls class struggle and class struggle specifically over only materialistic things. So essentially wealth or property. Uh, and that, that was one, um, well, I'll come back around to that later, but then he kind of also talks about, he has this very, um, it's like a very pragmatic way of looking at things. He, you know, says, you know, he's not going to lay out this kind of grand theory of things or talk about divine rights, the way things like ontologically ought to be right. But he's actually just going to do this task of understanding how we got here in order to diagnose what to do now and what the problems are with the current state. So he talks about how we kind of transitioned over history from the tribes of gatherers to a feudal system and then to manufacturing and to industrialization where specialization is increasing along each step. And he also seems to kind of think there's some internal and inherent contradiction to capitalism that will guarantee its downfall or demise. Uh, and that's when he moves in section two to kind of put forth the positive proposal, which <clears throat> to be honest, this was part of the thing that I was confused about because he said things that at least if you look at the exact words he's saying might kind of appear a little bit contradictory. Uh, but the vast majority of it centers around the abolition of private property and the equalization of people in society. Uh, so he kind of puts forth that positive proposal in large part by juxtaposing it to criticisms of communism. And that is, I mean, really where the meat of the, of the proposal ends. So that's by way of introduction. And then honestly, I, I think we can just jump into whatever parts we want to from here. Yeah. Sure. And, and just correct if I'm wrong, but I think he says that capitalism inevitably leads to the mm. abolition of capitalism. Yeah. Because capitalism furthers the standing of the proletariat such that um, they are now able to cooperate and mm. um, I guess they're in a better position themselves now. Uh, I, I think we should go to that section exactly I agree. to kind of get the logic for that. But Hey, real quick also, we should mention mm. <clears throat> he wrote this in 1840. Was it seven? Seven, yes. Yeah, so just just as a, you know, kind of... No, context is super it, important here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it, Okay, we can it, honestly we can go ahead with with starting with that. I don't think we have to like try to do it chronologically. Do you, do you know Adam where that was kind of in the pages page numbers? Uh, I do believe it was in part one. But... <clears throat> that sounds right. But oh, was it was it around? I had it highlighted. It was my one of my favorite quotes. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Okay, this I, this might start to get at it. On page 17, one, two, three, four paragraphs down, he says, <clears throat> oh, and we'll, always, we'll post the PDF as always. Um, he says, we see then the means of production and of exchange on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up were generated in feudal society. At a certain stage in the development of these means of production and of exchange, the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged, the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry, in one word, the feudal relations of property became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. I, that's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, but actually what I know that what I just read is that's part of his kind of, isn't that part of his historical account of how we got to this problem? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, can, can we talk about that first? Sure. Then, um, yeah, because the first like two pages are basically him laying out what he views as a kind of the history yeah. of, well, it, it basically is an introduction to like historical materialism. Yeah. Um, Which, we, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I'm not sure to what extent we want to critique this um, specifically. Well, I, I kind of had a lot of mixed thoughts about this um, because in, in one sense, um, I think he gets a lot right with this where obviously i mean he talks about the you know kind of at the root of uh modernization is class struggle right where he's he kind of points out that there's and this is obviously true if you just think about it uh there is an there is an incommensurable tension between the uh you know pro producers of labor and the owners of of the means of production right because if you're a factory owner or a business owner or whatever, you, and this, this goes back to the estranged labor. You know, you view people's labor as an input and you want to pay them the least amount possible so that you can generate the most input. And if you're the reverse, if you're a worker, you want to obtain the highest wage possible because obviously that gives you a better life. And those, there's no way of reconciling those. Like it's always just going to be a, a compromise, but it's going to be a compromise that never actually um, it's going to be a compromise that never actually satisfies either side. It's more of just like an indefinite stalemate until condi conditions change, right? So I, I, I thought that that was pretty obviously true. But the part that I kind of was very, very skeptical of is that he looks at, he seems to border on like a pure... Uh, of like a purely reductionist view of history where he's saying everything, every political movement can be reduced to or analyzed in terms of capital or the ownership of production, stuff like that. That, that honestly struck me as just obviously wrong. I mean, I was just thinking of examples and, you know, we, I've talked to you guys about like the Anabaptist movement and where that, you know, sect of uh, Lutherans, uh, you know, really, really polarized and, and went up into the north of Germany and they had that standoff and everything like property was honestly not at the center of that movement. It was like religious beliefs. So I, I don't know if you're Marx, if you're analyzing everything through the lens of history that that does explain every given movement. Yeah, yeah it's not really. Well, I first, well, there's a lot of points there, actually. Um, I guess first. I don't know that he necessarily says it's like fundamental to every movement, 
I think it's he's saying like in terms of like the on a grand scale, like mm-hmm. entire like architecture of production, like you can kind of trace a lot of um, history through this observation, like because mm-hmm. the you know the there's like this kind of feedback loop between like the productive forces and then the institutions that are erected around those. And then, you know, whenever the production forces change, you know, he get feedback there. Um, but he, at least in this work, and I think he actually does change his view a little bit after this. Um, it's very like unilinear. It's like, he, mm. he says like, they're like, we all started in the same place. Every there's one path and like it, you know, it goes through these stages and it ends in like communism, right? We're currently in <laughs> yeah. capitalism and the bourgeois revolution. It was now this is like an interesting thing because it, I mean, it's relevant to history. I'm not sure how relevant to the conversation, but his view, at least at this time, is basically, you know, the bourgeois revolution is necessary, like 100 percent necessary, you know, feudalism, then where we are now and then mm. communism. Right. Um, there's no um, <laughs> there's no skipping the revolution, which is what the Russians would end up doing. Um, they basically jumped over the bourgeois revolution. So it's just an interesting observation, I guess, that even like later Marxists have a lot to have a lot of qualms with at least this version of Marx. Oh, also, and, and I, well, I, I do want to respond to your earlier point, though, Jordan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's also important to note that when looking at it through like kind of a grand scale um, lens, Marx points out the fact that many great ideas or revelations that occur are from people that, you know, have the leisure and the capital yes, yeah. in order to kind of, um, to produce ideas when they're not toiling. Mm. Right. So, so kind of going back to like your Anabaptist point, like the idea of like a rebirth in that sense would have come from someone who mm. wasn't, you know, a member of the proletariat that was toiling all day. It was someone mm. that came from more of like the bourgeois class, whether that's, you know, some sort of, you know, Da Vinci. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, or, you know, or, 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 or just somebody that um, whether they're part of, you know, the clerical movement mm. or they're part of the property class, those are, those are not toilers. Mm. You know, those are not people that are toiling in the field. So I think that's what he would argue. I don't know. But, yeah. It, it was just weird. It was, uh, it was honestly unclear to me whether he was saying like, every political movement or like or any movement could be traced to that where if he was just saying on a grand scale it's like you know i don't know it's just it seems to me that like many large movements can't obviously be traced back to that i mean you know like even i don't know i just i i think like if you look at even the discovery of the new world right like if you look at the early explorers like Magellan or Columbus, any of these people, uh, it, it's obvious that the conquest of resources was a huge factor there, right? You couldn't tell the story without that. But telling the story in only those terms, it also seems to kind of leave something out. You know what I mean? I, I just didn't, I just didn't know if he was kind of doing that more purely reductionistic task. Yeah, I, I would focus less on like the idea of like all movements because I don't think that would be something mm-hmm. he would necessarily, um, even at this time, agree with. It's it's more of like yeah he identifies the scale in which he's talking, which is same like the important scale okay. um, yeah. societal transformation, and then kind of goes from there to explain it. 
in a historically reductionist kind of way. Yeah. And, and like I said, in that way, I don't think he's wrong. The yeah. interesting thing going just, I wanted to remark on what you said, Giffen, because it's, he actually almost has this like very weird teleological or Hegelian view of history where it's like, it mm. goes through <clears throat> these oscillations of necessary steps that then converge on communism as young. The, yeah. 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 No, young Marx especially was an idealistic Hegelian. Like 100 percent. And it's he really interesting. He, that's like one that. basically one third of his project is kind of like that German philosophy, um, which he and, railed against pretty hard in section three. It was funny. <laughs> yeah, no, like, yeah, he, you know, critiques. He has critiques, but um, he does kind of adopt that kind of mindset of like the grand arc of history kind of. Um, yeah. But so like, I, I don't know, maybe this will be um, helpful, but. From, this is like a way I've heard like his project described, um, which it was informative and this uh, it was useful when reading this. It's that like Marx's project was combining German philosophy, English economics and French socialism. And through this, I think you can see all of those elements. We just, oh, Jordan, you just identified like the he- kind of Hegelian um, <clears throat> influence the the um, I don't know. Like I've, I haven't read the wealth of nations, but I've, you know, Mm. I'm well, relatively familiar with like Smith and he is like all over the place in this, um, in parts one and two, Mm. um, like Adam Smith is thinking is everywhere. Like it it is a million percent clear reading this, especially whenever he talks about like the, um, uh, the changes in like production that he was like taking these ideas from Smith, um, good ones and bad ones. In fact. Um, and then like the French (laughs) socialism part is obvious. What do, you, what do you mean good ones and bad ones? Didn't you hear Peterson say there's nothing good in the Communist Manifesto? <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I forgot to um, invoke uh, Peterson. That's my bad. I, I, I won't even say anything else about it. It's not even worth saying. Just, I, it's just our suffering. <laughs> I had a question about, uh, on page 16, I had a question about what something meant. Uh, one, two, three three slash four four slash five paragraphs down the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production oh also if people don't know bourgeoisie are the kind of ownership class than the proletariat of the working class um so he says the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production okay i totally buy that right like that's that is like the core of capitalism is you always have to it's like the newest, newest thing, right? Like there's never not going to be a new iPhone or whatever, right? Okay. But then I didn't understand what he meant by the next uh, mm-hmm. sentence. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. I, I just, I don't know why, but I, I didn't understand what to make of that. Because he's saying, okay, so conserving the old ways of doing things was was opposed to that the condition of existence for all earlier industrial class is he is he talking about craftsmen okay that is what he's talking about there yeah yeah yeah. do craftsmen really not try to improve on their craft they're like i i didn't i didn't really get that they do but but it would be um you would keep the you know you would learn from a master in this period of time right you know you would go be an apprentice where you would kind of learn traditions of producing whatever 
okay. that has been kind of constructed over, you know, or it's been formed over, you know, centuries at that point, right? Yeah. But it's like, okay, in this period of, you know, maybe say iron production, mm. okay, well, out with the old craftsman way of doing it, right? Like we have machines now. Mm. So, so mm. there were centuries of um, practices that were kind of just thrown aside or machines. Yeah. And so, to, to add on to that, um, what I think he's saying here is even a little bit further. Um, well, actually one I'll add on to like the um, previous mode of production. Imagine like the guild system. Basically that was meant to like benefit, you know, people in a particular trade, you know, one way of viewing that is like at the expense of like, you know, consumers or other parties involved. Right. So that's the way it was a very conservative in nature. Right. Um, but in addition, um, I think what he's saying here is actually like, not only are, have we kind of tossed aside the, the earlier um, like way of doing it in the current system, it kind of can't propagate with, with any new conservatism. It needs to like, mm. there, there can't be like the pre-existing parties can't just like kind of bunker down. It's in the nature of like the, the you know, the new mode of production to constantly kind of tear down whatever institutions are there, you know, and just find whatever is better, more efficient right mm. still within like the constraints of like the property um relationship mm. if that makes sense yeah it does so it's like it's different from all previous eras in that like it is it can't be conservative there's always going to be you know destruction you know creative destruction or you know whatever terminology you want to add there i think we should read that little section because that's one of the best um written you know parts of this entire paper but uh mm all fixed fast frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into mm. air. All that is holy is profane. And man is at last compelled to face with sober senses, his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. So I don't know. I enjoyed how that was written. Cause I, oh. I, I, I did get what he was saying in the sense that, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't want to read into this too much and kind of like, <clears throat> you know, make up some conception that Marx wasn't going for. But I do think that this paragraph at the very least kind of prompted me to think about, you know, what it would be like, you know, to like learn a trade, to, you know, like learn from like, you know, a craftsman to develop your own craft and, now, now compare that to just like working in a factory, you know, and I mean, where it's, it's actually like, a strange labor point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where it's like, uh, you know, these are just valued practices that were essential, but mm. no more, no more. Now there is, you know, what is the best machinery? Mm. What is the best? Um, and even, and before it, it may, maybe once you learn how to use that machine properly, there's a new machine mm. and, there's, and you're part of the machine. I mean, you're, you're like, you're just essentially a machine. Yeah. You're just like the machine's upkeep machine or what, you know? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, that makes sense. That, that, that makes sense. Cause I, I just, I, I wasn't exactly sure what he was going for there. And I guess, I mean, after that, he talks about how, you know, the, it's the next sentence, the need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It mm. must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. And I really liked that too, because I mean, that just seems like a, va- 
I don't know how you can argue with that. No, what I find amusing here is that this point is just straight from Smith. Really? (laughs) Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I, we can talk about it afterwards, but like, like the best, like the clearest, like observations of like the developing economy are just ripped straight from Adam Smith, straight from the wealth of nations. Like the observation of like the kind of um, uh, labor being, uh, you know, shifting from like, uh, you know, groups like guilds or, you know, tradesmen doing things. So like within a factory, you have like the division of labor, like that's Smith here, like the, the kind of necessitation of like expanding markets, that's Smith. So like, it, it's, I mean, it's acute, it's great, but it's, it's not really Marx as Marx having read Smith and then writing it down. Just nice. another, I thought it would be useful. Cause I, I have yeah, Marx every, everywhere I have, like, this is straight from Adam Smith. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll find the, we'll be able to identify the parts um, where Marx contributes, you know, not just like regurgitating Smith. Um, but I, I just call, wanted to comment on that last paragraph. Like this was so much better written in my opinion, it's like it, it invo- invokes like I don't know if this was actually Engels' influence or if it was just I think Marx it was Engels' it was be, influence. Yeah. I don't. I mean, maybe it was just like Marx intended to publish it. Like they were contracted to write this. Um, it's worth mentioning, but it was it reads really, really well, and it it really has some incredible like poetic lines in it. Like it's it's really a good read. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, they had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. Like all that is solid melts into air. I mean, it's all beautiful. It's like <laughs> yeah. it really is. Yeah, Regardless right. of, you it's know. great writing. Yeah, no, no. But yeah, anyways. And, and I think that kind of bleeds into the next paragraph, which I like too, mm. um, where he says, like, to the great chagrin of reactionists, you know, it being capitalism in the sense, has drawn from under the feet of industry the national ground on which it stood all old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. And like, we still see that today, right? Mm. Like, like in the sense that, you know, I mean, I, I know it's still kind of like a recent industry, but I mean, just consider like uh, coal mining, mm. you know, like in West Virginia or whatever. Great example. Just it, where it's just like, you know, it's been supplanted to natural gas because natural gas is cheaper it's cheaper so it's like and that necessarily isn't like a bad thing of course but at the same time it's just this this mode of economic production here what's like it you know um kind of you know spreads its tendrils to every corner of the earth yeah if you aren't as productive or as efficient as the most efficient and productive thing, you get around. burst asunder. <laughs> yeah, you're you're out. You will be. Out. Yeah, yeah. So, well, this was actually. I thought that there was kind of a, a neat point that he almost failed to make, which is, I mean, he could do, like, he really could do the reverse side of the historical materialist materialist reductionism and just point out that the problem with capitalism is that everything has to get reduced into this one metric money just just profit or loss right and like i don't know about you guys but to like i have seen that you like you do see that in industry now like anything that gets proposed in your job it's just like oh, does it make dollars and cents or does it not like that that's the only metric that things get weighed on like even um like uh i i heard this like one talk by this um uh, like an, like, I don't remember what position he had at like an insurance company, or I'm sorry, not, a, not an insurance company, a, a a car manufacturing company, and he was like, no, 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 you guys don't understand. 
when we decide to call for make a recall or not, we literally factor in the cost of the lawsuits for people losing their lives. And if it's less than the cost of recall, we don't do it. It's just like, oh, yeah, shit. I, mean, I had the benefit of like an economics background. So this is like this is super like well established in my mind. It, yeah. It's 100 percent true. It, nothing. I mean, this again, it's just like it goes back to the estranged labor point, but nothing is done for its own sake anymore. Like yeah, everything even, is instrumental. Yeah. Even like the, the really positive things you can imagine. There's calculations underlying them like they, there has to be or else they'll be burst of thunder. Like, you know, like. <laughs> You can imagine, like, even like a super benevolent act regarding, like, didn't I talk about this or something? Time? Like, something yeah. super, like, yeah, like it will simply, yeah, like, if it happens to coincide with something that's beneficial to you, it's not because they were trying to, like, max it was, it was, pro, it was, it okay. coincided with profit maximization. That, like, that is the yeah. reason. Did we and, talk you know, about this in the Bertrand Russell uh, episode where it was like, it was just, dis- it was discovered that, uh, that that a coffee break actually increased productivity so people were given a coffee break and they were like oh this is so you know so nice or whatever that we get like a five minute coffee break but it's actually it's not for them it's to increase yeah. productivity no, yeah. i have another good a great example so um i you know everyone knows henry ford but did you know that like he famously like raised yeah. like the wage to five dollars yeah. like you know an hour which was absurd at the time it was again not benevolence he said you know, well, I will create a class that will be able to purchase my vehicles that I'm like, they're producing. It's like, yeah. it, it is self-interested, you know? Yeah. You know, you can, there's clearly some trade-offs going on, you know, positives and negatives with that, but it is, mm-hmm. it underlies everything, simply everything. Yeah. That, that, that was, I mean, there were shades of that kind of mixed into, uh, to like all of page 16, but that, that was one thing that I did actually think he hit the nail on the head on, uh, was on just that. Seven, oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say on page 17, like we want to kind of move on a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just wonder what we think of this idea here, where I think uh, it's, I don't know how I feel about it, but he's talking about the centralization of political power due to a kind of uh, materialistic view of Mm -hmm. the world, where he says, I'm going to read on the uh, second paragraph of page Mm -hmm. 17. So the bourgeoisie keeps more and more doing away with the scattered state of the population, of the means of production and of property. It has agglomerated population, centralized the means of production, and has concentrated property in a few hands. Okay, I agree with that. Yeah. The necessary consequence of this was political centralization. Independent or but loosely connected provinces with separate interests, laws, governments, and systems of taxation became lumped together into one nation with one government, one code of laws, one national class interest, one frontier, and one customs tariff. I don't, I don't know if I, I mean, do we think that's, that's true? There's one very banal interpretation, which it does seem true, which is like, if you just, so he's kind of pointing to the fact that like he, he's pointing to the fact that these means of production act as almost vacuum cleaners for the resources around, including people, right? You know, the factory gets more and more efficient, more people work at the factory, they produce more goods. It's just kind of that, you know, so it, it seems parsimonious with that to assume that as those kind, and then you can imagine, you know, kind of companies forming pacts with each other and everything. In that sense, it almost does seem to go hand in hand with the point he was making about how 
the you know the fingers of capitalism reach all over the world and not in the sense that it is all over the world but in the sense that uh if you just i don't know because it, it, it does seem parsimonious with what he points out, out about how tribes of gatherers kind of united and formed small towns and then those towns united and formed small cities right and then the cities became city states and city states become states and countries and everything. I don't know. That's like a very, very materialistic reading of that, but it doesn't seem wrong. Yeah. Um, it was clearly, I mean, it's, you know, pulled from observations about like the, you know, specialization or division of labor. Um, like it, urbanization is a natural consequence of kind of like the changing, the shift in mode of production. That seems you know, logical to me, the political aspect does seem relevant either in the fact that whenever you have like kind of lowly populated, like spread out communities, whenever they're, you know, being pulled towards like city center, because that's kind of the, the, you know, incentive system that's constructed, then you kind of have the unifications. Like that also seems natural. Um, I don't know whether he's trying to make the claim that kind of like, this simply goes on forever until, you know, communism, you know, I think he kind of is like, it seems like a kind of a wink at that. Like, you know, he's showing the arc without, without like, you know, comprehending or grasping with the idea of maybe diminishing returns to that, you know, at some scale. Um, It's, I don't know if you kind of were sure, but like overall it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, I kind of, Oh, and lastly, it's like the, the capacity because he makes a, I think this was a previous claim. He makes the point that governments are kind of, oriented towards like the goals of like the um the bourgeois class then like the idea of the centralized government allows for further developments um that like for you know the you know to the benefit of the bourgeois class that otherwise would be insurmountable you know like just centralization of things but like help coordinate railroads like where you have otherwise massive coordination problems governments are an instrument to solve that for the bourgeois class and all that seems to fit together you know it's just Mm. a matter of like the magnitude of his claim where you could find fault right because he does seem to kind of be pointing to an arc the very unilinear course of history at least it's kind of subtext for me i just thought about it right now when you were talking giffen in the in the converse side like if you just ask what incentive does a you know just a, a craftsman have to kind of unite with people far away like none really he just you know uh, just cares about his kind of local market in that sense, right? But the more you do kind of industrialize, then it it kind of very naturally does look more and more like you want to kind of unite and create trade clauses and everything. And that that seems like almost a ground swelling or like a bootstrapping of government in a way. Yeah, and I, I'm going to be making a lot of points and hopefully not repetitive points, but another kind of angle here is just the idea of that previous mode of production, like these kind of we're not talking about peasants basically ever with Marx. We're talking about like, you know, the, the previous producers, which were like tradesmen. Right. Um, so like industrial production and he, he pulls again from Smith and kind of observes, like you were saying with the incentive structure, um, basically that they had in the old system, mon- local monopolies on their production. Right. So there was no incentive to like broaden the market and then you face competition. Right. Mm-hmm. But because of like the, the kind of new you know, capitalism, he doesn't use the word capitalism because it hasn't been developed. We can just kind of shorthand capitalism. It, um, 
it kind of forces the market broadening, which forces this coming together, which forces like the political consequences. Um, that's another mm-hmm. angle. This is the idea of like kind of the previous labor local monopoly. I thought I'd introduce. Again, I'm pulling out all this stuff from basically Smith. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I buy everything you said there. I think it just kind of comes back to an idea Jordan brought up earlier where it's like, okay, like I understand why what you just laid out can lead to the centralization of power, which then leads to the centralization of, you know, uh, or the political centralization. But it's almost like, okay, there are many other reasons not the why, whole you get, story. why you get political centralization, but you can understand why the concentration of capital among individuals can lead to political centralization. So, yeah, I mean, I actually kind of, maybe it's just my economics background, but I kind of do lean towards the view that like, not that it's inevitable, but it is a pretty strong force, like a very strong force. Would you agree with this? It, it's not the only, <clears throat> I, wonder if, I wonder if this kind of could sum up Marx. It's not, it's not that centralized government was kind of the natural, uh, let me rephrase it. I wonder if, okay, I wonder if this would be true. Uh, uh, centralized government the, the reason for it is not this industrialization, but it wouldn't have happened without it. Some, something like that. Like it's not the whole story, but it is a necessary condition for it to happen. I'm sorry, which is a necessary condition for the other? Um, which, what are the, what's the, the direction of your claim? The, I'm wondering if like the industrialization and specialization of everything that Marx is talking about under mm-hmm. capitalism is a requirement for centralized government, but it doesn't tell the whole story of why it occurs. I think uh, he's saying kind of the opposite though. Right? Yeah, that's what I was trying yeah, to get at. Because okay. you can yeah, imagine cause... previous like political institutions, just like monarchy, like you can, you know, pretty centralized, you know, to some some degree, maybe you not think with monarchy the to production. Would happen without I guess it just depends on what scale, but like wh- why what I don't know, what incentive would a bunch of like if you just look go like way back, you know, just a bunch of tribes in like the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. What reason would they have to band together besides warfare. warfare right wouldn't it be warfare over resources no it could be i mean that's it, true it could, i guess it, it could, could be different yeah yeah, yeah okay no i buy that or religion yeah. yeah yeah so there there is other reasons why but okay. i think I, I think i do sort of buy his idea that yeah. you know the concentration of property among individuals does lead to the central or, or political centralization yes. i think yes. I, I think i buy it going that direction so okay. And especially for you know, from Marx's perspective, where you had like, I mean, Giffen, you would know this better than me, but I mean, how many different princes did you have like in the Holy Roman Empire? Oh, right? yeah, so no, you, you had like fifty some. Like, so it's like it's actually very, very well timed because I don't want to get too bogged down too much in the history, but this was in eighteen forty seven. This was written in eighteen forty eight. Europe, continental Europe, exploded into like the revolutions of eighteen forty eight, and kind of key. Um, coalitions that were developed were like that were super critical is kind of like the unification of like the German peoples which didn't quite get off the ground yet um, fully and then the unification of Italy which didn't get fully off the ground yet so like this is he this is kind of what he's observing like and it'll it almost basically does come to pass at some point all right he identifies like you know he can look to Italy and say well, there are some forces at work here and like some tensions building, you know, amongst these like random principalities or in Germany, et cetera. Um, and the forces are, you know, 
providing a lot of tension towards centralization. So it's very, I don't want to say that the only place he drew this from, but like it makes sense for the time. Yeah. Considering he's like positioned. I don't know. Where did he write this? Did he write this one in London? I want to say London, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think that sounds right. Yeah. I I think he did. Um, But I guess he had maybe just moved to London. So he would have been in Germany. Or I guess not. Germany wasn't unified at that point. Yeah, so right. he, 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 one of the so, three so he, states. Yeah. yeah, so he, so he yeah. was there. Yeah. yeah, he was very aware of what was going on in continental Europe. Yeah. Uh, okay, do we want to talk about the that inherent contradiction? Because this was something that I wanted to talk about in terms of the modern day, right? Um, uh, so he 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 almost talks about and like I don't know there there are quotes uh, that I could give. So throw, on page, throw us a quote, yeah. Toss us a quote. Yeah, page, toss us a quote to kind of bite on here. Page 19, second paragraph. But with the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses. Its strength grows and it feels that strength more. The various interests and conditions of life within the ranks of the proletariat are more and more equalized in proportion as machinery obliterates all distinctions of labor and nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same low level. Okay, so that's like kind of his stage one of the downfall where the problem is, is that you know, the proletariat, not only he's, he's saying you need more and more workers, obviously, and the wealth is being con- concentrated in few and fewer hands. Uh, it also becomes concentrated both in, I think he would say, uh, like geographical location because of the centralization, but also in terms of similarity of living standards, right? So you can kind of relate to people more easily, right? So it's actually this backhanded way in which uh, the proletariat is increasing as in power and in concentration as they become more useful for uh, the bourgeoisie. So then at the bottom of that page, he talks about another uh, kind of development. He says, finally, in times when the class struggles nears the decisive hour, the progress of dissolution going on within the ruling class, in fact, within the whole range of old society, assumes such a violent, excuse me, assumes such a violent, glaring character that a small section of the ruling class cuts itself adrift and joins the revolutionary class, the class that holds the future in its hands. Just as, therefore, at an earlier period, a section of the nobility went over to the bourgeoisie, so now a portion of the bourgeoisie bourgeoisie goes over to the proletariat and in particular a portion of the bourgeois ideologists who have raised themselves to the level of comprehending theoretically the historical movement as a whole um so he's kind of talking about how like people begin to jump ship almost uh seeing that growing swell of of the proletariat and I don't know this do do we actually see that happening like ha- have we seen that happening i i don't know that what the movement from bourgeois to proletariat yeah i i don't know that i agree with that because i was thinking of people like jordan peterson and brett weinstein almost right like people who have are clearly elites but who align with like you know 
kind of the working class in a large sense of the fact that, you know, it's the right wing working class that they align with. Right. And that's kind of their fan base, but they're not actually joining them. They're, they're kind of using them as means of production and just ad revenue and book sales or whatever. Right. Like, I don't know. Yes. So I guess the I think the claim is less about like that it's inevitable that you know you everyone becomes proletariat at some point. It's more like the the forces are of such a degree that like unsuccessful bourgeois yeah will you know fall into proletarianism because they well, I don't think it's they unsuccessful. No longer, because what? if you're unsuccessful at becoming bourgeois, then you just are proletariat. No, I no, think it had no, to be no. Like, if you are already bourgeois and then you fail at continuing to be because of the you know competitive forces i didn't think he was saying that though because then you're not like jumping ship you're kind of like falling out of favor with the bourgeoisie uh, i well, you, a- you fall out of the class because you lose your property is more like so that's what he's saying i think that's what he's saying basically no, like because no, the forces people okay. out of like the bourgeois like it you know it's very turbulent as he was saying okay. in this page if that's Therefore, what he's saying it, like it builds the proletariat necessarily because even like even people who are in the you know ruling class will be forced out because of you know all these forces i oh, think that's what so that's what okay okay he's basically saying it's, it's continuing to grow even from previous rulers because I they, thought, people fall in oh okay i thought i'd be wrong if you find that, a line that contradicts that please let me know no it was just how i interpreted that line because i i thought that he was saying it's like you know like the class struggle nears the decisive hour like i, I thought he was saying that some per- per- bourgeois people will see that the proletariat are kind of growing in number and then join them like like voluntarily kind of change sides almost instead of suppressing them to join them i think well, he, 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 he does say point. that too he, well he says that too right there where he says that you know it there are going to be intellectuals that see kind of like in this hegelian way that you guys were describing that you know the ultimate end is communism mm. so they recognize that fact they understand the arc of history and they kind of just um will they, join the side of kind of the inevitability in that sense. they try to time the market <laughs> well, well to, to <laughs> that's, the dip. That's, yeah that's one side but then the other one that you guys were kind of talking about i i i kind of interpreted that almost as like as giffen was describing where you could imagine what about like kind of like a wealthy shopkeep here like where we live right mm-hmm. but what if like you know they they employ maybe you know 30 to 40 individuals Mm-hmm. They might be considered part of like the bourgeoisie at that point, but say Walmart arrives. So not now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Walmart arrives. They get displaced. Now they're part of the, uh, the Importantly, they country. lose all their capital, right? Like mm-hmm. they'll just be bought out or just driven out. They can't pay rent anymore. Like they, mm-hmm. by definition, like they are no longer, you know, a member of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. I, I especially liked the, um, I, I thought it was even more accurate for like the lower middle class that he was describing where it's yes. like, I, 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 I especially felt that one today where it's like, um, there are a lot of, you know, we can, there's so many examples we can choose, like say like a truck driver, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to imply that truck drivers are lower middle class because they can make you know quite a good wage, but, but let's just say that, you know, you are a truck driver, like at the lower middle class, right. Where, you know, you do in this case, um, your job is threatened by market forces in the sense that you might, you could get displaced automated, by automation, yeah, yeah. right? So in that sense, like someone in that position might recognize that like their position is pretty tenuous, right? Like they're kind of hanging on by a thread. So they might, even though they're not part of the proletariat say, 
they might defect into the proletariat because they recognize that, or they might defect into proletariat interests because they recognize that they will soon, you know, be joining that class potentially. Mm. So, which I thought yeah. was interesting. So. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly the kind of thing I was trying to point out. It's like the people will see that even if you're in a good position, you're not in a good position. Mm. Right. So, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, uh, okay, so okay, okay, so we have those two points on the table. He adds that pe- people will be. I mean there's this like increasing stratification, right? Where like the, 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 the wealthy control more and more and more. And he almost talks about how they're like, this seemed to be at the heart of the contradiction where they're driving themselves out of business almost because people don't have the money due to lower and lower wages to actually buy the goods they're producing. It could like the model mm-hmm. T uh, example with Henry Ford. Yeah. 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 So then on page 21, <clears throat> I'll just read like the rest of it. He says, <clears throat> It is unfit to rule uh, it, I think, being capitalism there again. Uh, capitalism is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within its slavery, because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it has to be fed him instead of being fed by him. Society can no, no longer live under the bourgeoisie. In other words, its existence is no longer compatible with society. The essential conditions for the existence And for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition of capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between laborers. The advance of industry, whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association. The development of modern industry, therefore, cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which bourgeois produces and appropriates products. What the bourgeois, therefore, produces, above all, are its own grave diggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. Okay. Hmm. This, is, this is very interesting to me. Um, yeah, this is, this is a huge point. It's like capitalism yeah. sows... Th- the seeds for its own demise right for its own demise because it essentially he's pointing out the fact like just to condense all of that Hmm. he's pointing out the fact that capitalism relies on this kind of endless churning of resources and production of goods and and services and everything and to do that you have to continually drive down wages to get lower prices so the people will buy it and everything you just have to keep it's like it's like a ponzi scheme almost you just have to like keep it running you know but he points out that just like almost by the laws of physics that can't continue indefinitely. Like you just can't. Yeah. It's just, Oh no, exactly. You're going to hit some wall at some point. That was a better analogy. Even you might realize because he, I think he actually viewed himself as the Newton, you know, of, (laughs) of like, that's interesting economy. Like he literally thought he saw like the world just like flowing through his mind, (laughs) like, like Marx and Angles, like they, you know, what, what Darwin did to biology, like, this was going to do to like you know historical economy or whatever terminology you want to phrase it as the world whatever scope so my question is like especially in this earlier stage where it was unilinear Mm -hmm. here's my here's my question he seems incontrovertibly right about 
oscillations within capitalism, right? Like look at the 2008 market crash. That is just mm. a perfect example. It was just this like churning of, of real estate and just loans for real estate. And they didn't have any more good loans and they bundled these like packages of poor loans and rebranded them as, you know, it was just, it was pure madness, right? And it was all driven by just this, just we got to have the stocks up. So that it was just all a Ponzi scheme, right? Line goes up. But I, hear, I don't know, like this was written in 1847 and it's 2022 mm. and there's a lot of capitalist countries, like the vast majority are at least either capitalist or, you know, very capitalist in, in. Yeah. I mean, are there any, aspects. are there any like non-nominally communistic powers left? And, and, and that was the other like side of my question <laughs> is like communism hasn't worked. Like, yes. So, so I might be able to. Well, I, I kind of want to throw an idea, an idea yeah. first to see if you guys uh, kind of got this impression too. But do you get the, do you get the sense like in this paper that Marx thinks there's like a finite amount of wealth? Like I like yes. let me read like let me read you this quote here. Yeah, please pull of, it up to, to back up. It's, it's page. on page twenty, final quote. I mean, final paragraph. He says. <laughs> The modern labor, on the contrary, instead of rising with the process of industry, mm. sinks deeper and deeper below the conditions of existence of his own class. He becomes a pauper, and <laughs> pauperism develops more rapidly than population and wealth. Uh, I don't know about that. So, like, it, it yeah. almost seems like he's saying, like, you know, considering, like, wealth is, like, among just a few hands – the idea that wealth is going to, you know, further and further increase, you know, in his mind, I, I could be wrong here, but it just seems like, you know, more and more people in his mind, if there's a finite amount of wealth, become paupers. And the idea of people gaining wealth, um, there's the rate at which people are gaining wealth diminishes because there's less wealth to go around. I, I don't know. So I don't think he... I Wait, before you disagree before you disagree can because I yeah. want to hear if you're about to disagree with what I'm saying but I want to put it out there so that you can oh, do it for sure yeah okay it's all so when I read that I thought it's almost as if he failed to predict that generally speaking skills could keep up with the pace that we lose resources at so it's like yeah we're, we're kind of there's not an infinite amount of resources but the ways in which we can manipulate the amounts we have is kind of keeping up with uh, the rate at which we're just churning through it in a sense that like he almost seemed to, he, he seemed to not get that we could keep conditions pretty bad, but not bad enough so that that, that floor would always kind of creep up just as a byproduct of all of this innovation. And I wonder if that's why we actually haven't seen his prophecy come to fruition. So I don't know if that was included in what you're going to rebut Giffen or not. Uh, a little, I know I was, okay, I was okay. going to address something a little bit slightly different. We can still talk about that though. Um, so the point, like the quote, um, Adam, that you read was about, you were, I had a question about whether he kind of viewed wealth as kind of like, you know, finite. And then it's like, he's making a comment about, like it's simply going, you know, more and more to this group, right? Which leaves you obviously in a pauper's, like impoverished <laughs> state. Um, I think, and he's he's not very clear, but 
maybe this is a generous view, but I think he's saying he's observing a relative, right? It's a um, inequality that's developing, not necessarily like an absolute decrease, right? Like the wealth is continuing to increase, but the proportion which goes um, to like the yeah. less desirable classes is shrinking, right? It, it's the idea that which that's um, true, historically speaking, right? Yeah. Oh, no, this is basically what Henry George would point out in describing like the coincidence of progress and poverty, right? It's like this growing inequality, this wealth gap, not necessarily like there's a finite amount of wealth, right? Because I, I, th- okay. I think if, if he read his Smith properly, which he sometimes did, um, he'd probably recognize that like one of his critiques of previous, you know, political economists was that they viewed wealth as being finite right don't let gold leave the country that the keep the gold in the country even though that was terrible to trade you think like that (laughs) yeah it's yeah ridiculous like you know mercantilism so i don't know if that answered your question adam and i definitely know it didn't really address your point jordan (laughs) apologies they were different i didn't know if yours was going to hit on it it didn't that okay. No, what I, you said but, actually but I makes sense I definitely, to Adam. There. Definitely agree with Jordan, though. Like, on, like in the sense that, like, he definitely didn't predict what was going to happen in that sense. No, that, yeah. So you know, that, that living standards, yeah. yeah, you know, would would improve in such a way that you know, to say that pauperism is developing more rapidly than than wealth, I or or that it that pauperism, I guess, I guess that is what he says. Pauperism develops <laughs> more rapidly than wealth. It's like, yeah, can we really say that happened? No. No, no, it's like relative <laughs> pauperism did, but not pauperism. Absolutely. Because yeah. like yeah. at this point, like 30 years from now, like, you know, you start to enter the Gilded Age, right? That's like mm-hmm. the kind of most famous example of like the inequality, right? But wealth is developing, you know, like pauperism is relative, right? We still drag people up. They're just way farther than like the people in the head, right? And um, I'm going to make another kind of broad point about like my, you know, my previous knowledge about Marcus claims is that like kind of his... He, well, I don't know if you guys like had a preconceived um, notion of this, but Marx very like obviously states that like the bourgeois is like the most productive class of all time, like ridiculously. And his project mm-hmm. was basically to say we're going to keep or expand that productivity without the kind of like moral, like morally atrocious nature. Yeah. And kind of that link is where it's like he's. This is where he kind of pulls his Hegelianism and kind of his like kind of skewed observations and he's like the arc will get there but i mean from our frame of reference it's more like well, we have 150 years of knowledge and it's like it's a trade-off really that that's the kind of situation we're in right it's like yeah. th- the soviets were importing technology like 30 years after like the u.s yeah. started. it's like no yeah. no 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 <laughs> like, yeah you, you, they, we haven't quite got there yet you know what i actually just realized M- marx is actually kind of an accelerationist he actually wants <laughs> things to get so bad. He, isn't that kind of at the root of his theory? The, it, it, he expected it, and like no, I acceleration think it's actually entailed by it, isn't it? Because I don't it, know if it's strictly entailed. We can get to that. I kind of thought it was because on his view, it's like the people ha- pauperism is like a necessary condition. It's not even like an incidental one. You actually almost have to like drive people into pauperism <laughs> such that they. Because here's why I think this actually goes back to the point I was saying. I think the reason why we haven't seen this prophecy come to fruition is because we actually we actually can't in this society drive people that low in large enough numbers. Because what he failed to see is that like our what I said before, our skills are keeping up at like a very kind of neck and neck pace with the pauperism. <laughs> so 
So it's like, because the relative pauperism is, is, is just blowing up, right? I mean, just what? It's like uh, 50% of the wealth is owned by 1% of the population in the United States. It's something like that, right? Yeah, sure, um, whatever it is. It's, it's, if it's not that, it's very close. I'm not off by more than a few percentage points. Uh, it, it honestly could be less than 1%. It might, I think like, it, might, it, might, it might be like 0.1%. Okay, okay. So, yeah. so I'm definitely not off by more than a percent. <laughs> <laughs> so well uh i don't know what it's almost like what he failed to see is that people can get i i think like he failed to see the extent to which people can become sedated almost like you know are you really going to throw off the reins of production if you can kind of come home to like you know it's like a shitty apartment but it's like an apartment and you know you've got like an xbox or whatever Right. And you're just yeah. going to like, you're going to like order Chinese food and you don't have anything in your savings, but that's kind of a problem for later on. Right. And like, are, yeah. Are you, yeah, I don't know. I don't so know. this might be a Kate, like actually good evidence, Jordan, that like in the paragraph we were just talking about, maybe he actually did view it. Like I think that. he is an accelerationist. Oh, well, I was going to talk about like the point about like oh, absolute oh. wealth versus um, like yeah. relative wealth. Yeah. But like, I, I, he would definitely have you feel the pull towards accelerationism because right? it would prove him right <laughs> like i don't know that i he, think it's a necessary he, he thought it was step. natural i don't know if he would like say we have to keep like impoverishing people that would be like the accelerationist thing right like let us you know go towards this so that we can you know emancipate ourselves later um but he in line with like what he failed to see um <laughs> he actually mentions it because he mentions like in england like the um the series of acts from like the 1830s, right. That were like kind of, um, the 10 hour day, right. Yeah. It was a series of events, but that was like, yeah. that was the thank you. Like it, they're basically reforms. Right. Yeah. Um, and in, I mean, so in a sense, like he was spot on because he's writing, writing in 1847 and in 1848 revolution to explode across Europe. Right. Mm. But in another sense, we don't even really learn about the revolutions of 1848 because the Anglosphere wasn't affected by it england had reformed the system and so there was not the pressure to re- like for like large-scale revolution reformed States, it to what just, just kind of they oh, just kind of t- oh. dialed back the exploitation? Yeah, like, so like the, the worst excesses of capitalism were like addressed okay. within the legislature which kind of like lowers like the sure. you know the, the pacified energy, people. right exactly because yeah. and this yeah. was you know in part because england was developing first right mm. they went through the arc earlier and like if, if Marx was a little bit more observant, he would see that like you actually can you can actually like develop a system where you kind of like can address the, the worst aspects of capitalism, but keep the productive power in a world where you can't really get like both. Right. If you view it as a trade off and not like the grand arc of history, yeah. like it, it was self-regulating in that sense. Like hmm. there, there was no like inevitable explosion. And he would have been able to see that if he saw that England, you know, the next year didn't <laughs> explode into revolution. Right. It was continental Europe who developed after it wasn't as far along yeah. where it was like exploding. I know there's another side. I know Adam well. knows this saying, but like, you know how in, in fighting, there's that saying the most dangerous guy is the guy who has nothing to lose. Like the huge underdog. <laughs> it, it almost seems like England, like from what you're saying, Giffen learned that lesson almost. And they just gave the underdog a bit more. Oh. To be, he was like a bit no. more conservative in the fight. You oh. know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a hundred point. Like you guys can keep talking about, I want to pull something up. Well, I, I actually was going to just kind of comment on something very similar to what you just said, Jordan. Oh, okay. Where it, it just seems like giving your example of you know, someone coming home to like play Xbox, 
um, might order Chinese food. Marx doesn't describe a character like that. Like he keeps describing a subsistence wage character who has no property. He's property less and just earns enough to continue to exist in order to act as an I think I might want to, this might be a clarifying point, but whenever he says property, I think he's kind of referring to industrial property, right? Like property, which produces not necessarily like I own a, like a, a baseball. He does paint Adam's picture a bit. He, he's no, almost no, he like picturing. He does. I just wanted to clarify that specific point. No, no, he, 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 he imagines people like they get barely enough money to get like the, you know, the, the soiling green sh- like tube into their throat and then they get back <laughs> the next day. Like he does paint that picture and he says yes. it's inevitable. No, no, you're totally right. I, I used property wrong there. Yeah. Um, but, but he does describe subsistence wages oh. where, where the, the situation Jordan described, it's like, you're, you're, you're above subsistence. You know, yeah. you have, you have some quality of life. Mm. Yeah. And you can imagine, even like those, like kind of ridiculously unlikely, but still technically possible scenarios where like, if you're like super frugal and efficient, like minded, you can actually kind of rise through that system. Like, cause you're not like literally it's not impossible to save. It's just less than likely, right? Yes. Like you could, and, and you're not and literally also, barely getting enough nutrients to survive. And he also seemed like he overlooked the fact that that dream would just be pumped into people. And if you want to do a conspiratorial view of that, you could almost just say in order to prevent revolution. Do you know what I mean? I mean, the idea that you're just a millionaire in waiting, you know, like every Republican voter who understands the tax code is essentially falling for that right like well I, i'm not a millionaire yet but i don't want the tax rate to be high once i get there no, no it's so, just like <laughs> so this actually draws back this is the point i wanted to make the like promise of wealth it's everything it just oh, keeps so, the system so one, going yeah one psychologically yes even if you know that there's a slim chance if it's physically possible then like it's not you know you're not going to be critiqued um, this is kind of something that is brought up a lot in discussions about like home ownership and like segregation. If you have soft segregation where like there's like one black guy in the neighborhood, like you can you internalize the fact that it's possible, right? So you won't complain, even if it's like never gonna be more than one, right? Mm-hmm. So like that psychologically seems very, very true. And your point about like preventing revolution <laughs> is also hundred percent true. So we you know, we obviously are all familiar with the idea of universal health care. And the origins of the system, like the the modern system, is in Germany in like the 1880s with Otto von Bismarck, like the most conservative figure yeah. in like European history. And it was basically just a cold calculation. It's like if we give them this, you'll prevent revolution. Yeah. Like like I, Marx failed to see like that self interest even from like the ruling class. Because and it, yeah. and you know in a in a you can view that in a dark or more of a, like a light way. You can either yeah. view that as like, you know, capitalism actually isn't some like literally subsistent wage driven thing, or you can view that as like, you know, preventative for like the development of like the next mode of production, which is more moral. It's also like, like yeah, Mark, Mark seems to like almost like imagine like a ruling class, like in the United States, you know what I mean? <laughs> that like, that, that actually just like, doesn't give a crap. Like no matter how yes. bad the conditions get, it's yeah. just like, I think people are like, you know, like, could we get universal health care? 
and like, like, like the no. ruling class. <laughs> no, but no, no, but like worse than that, the ruling class is trying to like you know pull back the things they do have. You know what it's I mean? Just true. like social security and stuff like that. It's, it's just true. like it's they're true. actively working toward their own demise in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Where he doesn't give them like you know certain nations like enough you know savvy credit in a sense. Yeah. For like for like okay, here are some reforms we can make in order to continue to perpetuate this system. So. It's also, and this was my last thought before we move to the positive proposal. It's almost like Marx doesn't realize, or the picture he paints doesn't include a middle class. And I wonder if that's also a really big reason why we haven't seen that kind of prophecy come to fruition. Uh, where I don't know. It's like because look, if you're if you're you know if you're that pauper that he imagines. You're never going to become just like, you know, like the, the, the factory owner. And people probably know that. But, but there is that dream of just becoming like kind of, you know, just like white suburbia, you know? Yeah, because like it's kind of like the distinction I made, like I commented earlier, it kind of relates to that, where like yeah. you could technically be like, again, I don't, his, his definitions are a little shaky um, yeah. and they might change over time. But like if you like don't own any of the productive like, property right like you don't own any factory or something but like you have like enough inroads into like the more personal like aspects of like property it's like you know maybe maybe a home would like you be considered like home, enough yeah. it's like not you're not like producing anything but it's mm. like an inroad enough towards that end it's like you have some sort of capital right um so it's like he did he, yeah he totally saw like it, it is like impossibility like it's like you either like go to like you know the, the the darkest like most evil calculation of like how many calories <laughs> how many calories does the person need and i'll yeah. give them no more than like a single one more yeah. than like, <laughs> like he imagined that like and it's going down he doesn't really imagine yeah. a kind of like class of people where like they don't really own any means of production but they mm. can actually like get a pretty fulfilling life i mean in the best cases well well i uh, this was a, this made me think back to the estranged labor point again where it's like okay Think of some just objectively incredibly wealthy person like Bloomberg or Trump or someone, right? Yeah, yeah. They actually can't see the difference between a great middle-class life and a really poor life. <laughs> they actually can't see that dis dis distinction, right? I mean, it's like they, they're kind of squinting. They're seeing that one house is smaller than the other, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but, but I've got factories, <laughs> you know? But so, so from that perspective, I almost wonder if, I don't know, but then from, but then from the perspective of someone who is objectively poor, like if you're making $25,000 a year and you look at someone who just has a great middle-class life, a family income of like $110,000 or something, you're like, that's amazing. And I could maybe get there somehow. Like most of us won't, but maybe I will. And it's like, exactly. I, Cause yeah I mean, it ties back to the conception of like the class where he's laying out like in he in like the broad sense like both of those people might technically be like it's assuming that the they don't they're not self-employed like the wealthier case like the mm. you know 110 a year like if they're just like a really like good skilled like worker you know don't own the means of their production right mm. like <laughs> mark kind of views them as like the same he, it's like he, almost... he doesn't have like the capacity to distinguish he doesn't have the resolution it's almost like he didn't really get that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. Most men lead, lead lives of quiet desperation. That's just what the middle class is. 
he, he almost he almost thought that all lives of desperation were going to be loud and pauperous ones. He kind of forgot that people can live lives of quiet desperation, I feel like. Yeah. And that that just really reminded me of the estranged labor point where it's like, I don't know, just look at like the people of our parents' generation in large part, right? I mean, yeah, that's, no, it's a, that's, a, that's a pretty quiet and pretty desperate life. Yeah, I don't know. I just to make a quick side note before we move on, perhaps. Yeah. But um, you can definitely see where like the idea of alienation persisted. I don't remember exactly when *Estranged Labor* was written. It was like one of the Paris manuscripts, I think. So it was like I thought it was written at, before this in '84. It was '84. I thought that was strange. Hey, what I'm was sorry, 1844, 1844. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't yeah, sure yeah, if you yeah. meant the direction was wrong. No, yeah. I, so, I messed, yeah. Estranged Labor was definitely written before this. Oh, and I'm saying like, and it was very definitely clearly, 1844. He was, okay. He was still like on that kind of streak. Like it is, the alienation does permeate through this work. That's yes. all I wanted to say is like, it's yeah. here and it's presented better in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I think he definitely connects it to the political theory better in this. But um, uh, yeah, at the very least, yeah. Okay, let's, yeah, because I want to talk about his positive proposals because I don't know, almost with the estranged labor again, it's like I kind of saw a a lot. I was very amenable to his uh, laying forth of the problems. But again, I didn't understand how his solution really aimed to solve a lot of those problems while maintaining, uh, I don't know, their benefits, right? So, okay. I, I don't even have, I'm, I'm not even sure because it's like, to be honest, I didn't understand what he was saying here in large part because he talked about like the abolition of property, but then he kind of backed off of that. But then he was like, it's all property. But then he kind of backed off of that. I, I don't know what he's advocating for, to be honest at this point. In part, I think my comment earlier about distinguishing like the types of property is what he's trying to get at here. Okay. Like he's basically, so in the first, we're looking at just the first page, which yeah. doesn't actually have a number. Um, yes. 20, it would be 22, 22. Um, but um, basically he's like laying out, he's basically predicting like what the reader, like maybe even a sympathetic reader might like, like ha- hold reservations about, mm-hmm. like, especially like towards the bottom of the page um, where it's, someone is like this is the second to last paragraph um Mm. hard won self-acquired self-earned property do you mean the property of petty artisan and of the small peasant the form of property that preceded the bourgeois form like this is what someone Mm. who's reading this would say like you're gonna you know eliminate that like my self-earned property and then he kind of clarifies like only the Mm. property like that is bourgeois which is to say like you know the private property that relates to production yes that's kind okay. of what he's trying to clarify is like if you're you're if you're like especially if you're dis, um, dispossessed like artisan which is he actually addresses specifically mm. like you imagine like your tools like your you know your workbench mm. like you know your your take my tools <laughs> no i mean seriously though like <laughs> like they, they're already dispossessed because like a factory yes. can produce like twenty thousand pins when the pin maker produces two a day like mm they're already concerned about that. And they're like looking for solutions. Like this is, seems to be sort of sympathetic, but you know, clearly the communist rhetoric was already, you know, everyone was a communist at this point. So he basically lays out like, it is not like your tools that I'll be confiscating. Um, it is like yes. the bourgeois property that, you know, is productive mm. um, that, or that is, you know, rel- important to the uh, means mm-hmm. of production. Mm-hmm. So that's like, so, at least so, the first so what's, I, I guess, I guess with that one though, I, 
Can you clarify a little further on that? Like, how does he, I mean, I don't know if you would know this, but how does he actually distinguish between like when the, uh, you know, when artists begins to sort of become part of like the bourgeois and that, and, you know, cause like you can imagine become small, you can imagine, oh, here's just my perspective. You can imagine like, you know, an artisan maybe employs, you know, three craftsmen, right? Mm. Pretty small. You wouldn't really consider him bourgeois per se, but okay. Um, so you're not going to, you know, kind of socialize his property, but what about it? You know, maybe 10, you know, so, you, once yeah. you utilize, you know, machinery at that point. What's important to realize is that the artisanal form, like the, we're talking about craftsmen, like masters guilds, that is not the bourgeois system, right? This is a previous mode. This is the feudal, you know, the people who you be addressing here are like the dregs of the feudalistic system in continental Europe. These are like in the system, like the master doesn't own the mean, like doesn't own the production of like people under him. It's just, it's like a situation, like a kind of, a, I'm, I'm imagining like a guild situation, but like if, if like the apprentice produces like, um, you know, a sword, it's like, there's a, a relationship between the two, obviously, but like the sword is, you know, isn't the master's property in the same way that like, you mm. know, if I'm on an assembly line and I like drive nails into, you know, whatever all day, like you don't own anything <laughs> there. Right. Like it is, that's the estrangement and there's less estrangement in the artisanal case. So whenever he's talking about like addressing these people, he's, he's addressing people's like, you know, the, the political situation has changed. Um, these people have been dispossessed by both like the productive forces and like the political institutions shifting towards a notion of private property. Um, and they, they were never really bourgeois. They could have the potential to become it if they kind of adopt some of the form, right. If they turn their little like, you know, craftsman workshop into a factory, you know, even if it's like a small scale kind of thing, you can imagine, you know, like you are the one who hammers like, you know, the sword when you pull it out of the forge. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, in that case, like he would become bourgeois because the sword is his property, right? Like it, he kind of adopts the form. But in this case, like the dispossessed artisans are actually like one of the primary audiences, which is why he addresses it here because they they found themselves like going from like a kind of well-off kind of protected class and just thrown into the, like the the ocean of you know capitalistic forces, mm. realizing Seems. that they they weren't they didn't take advantage of the notion of private property in the same way. So you you kind of interpret Marx here that um, anyone is bourgeois. And I, I don't want to say like, you know, speak too broadly here, but you're kind of reading it that anyone who's bourgeois is someone that exploits another's labor. I mean, yeah, and, that's and, my and understanding. It owns, owns their means of production. Like if, yeah, you're, right. if, that you're, is if like, you're in that position, you're, you're part of the bourgeois class. Exactly. You are a property owner where property refers to like relative to production. And if you own that, that means you're going to be owning the mm. end product of whatever like individual division of labor that anyone underneath you contributes. Right. So that's kind of like, that's my understanding currently. And now it could be, you know, Just, slightly off or way off, but that's my understanding is like, you're part of the bourgeois. If you are like the productive property owner. Right. And like can, these dispossessed artisans are his prime target because they, they feel the loss of their stature and like it, their form of production doesn't gel anymore. Cause yeah. he contrasts it right with the next sentence where, where people means, or people say, 
or do you mean the modern bourgeois private property? Exactly. And then he responds, but what does wage labor create? Uh, but does wage labor create any property for the laborer? Not a bit. It creates capital, i.e. that kind of property which exploits wage labor and which cannot increase except upon condition of begetting a new supply of wage labor for fresh exploitation. So I think if you meet that condition, then you're considered the bourgeois. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I actually, I just had a funny, I was like, that's actually true next to it when he asked, but does wage labor create any property for the laborer? Not a bit. I was like, that's actually, that's actually true. Oh, that's exactly it. And that's kind of like, where I took it as more of like a definition for him, right? It's like, yeah. if you, if you know, the, the contrast that I laid out between like the artisan little like workshop and like yeah. a factory is that like, you might have like that sword, like you just like were kind of guided by the master in the first case. The second mm. one, you, you hammered the, you know, you, you hammered the sword. Yeah. You, and, just, and like, you, you get like the, the slop. <laughs> so you can yeah. come back in and, and, and hammer, hammer the sword the next day. <laughs> it's actually crazy too because it's like oh he's actually right about like this subsistence living almost i mean like you go into work you do this very specialized very estranged task and then you get enough money to live just a very comfortable lifestyle but not comfortable enough that you can't be obliged to come in the next day and still do it i don't know that i was like Oh, shit. he's actually kind of right there. Like, I just no, he's I I do find like hundred percent yeah. right where he says like not a bit. It's like yeah, and not a bit. Yeah, like really not a bit. Um. Okay, so the on the next page twenty three, mm-hmm. he says, "Let us now take wage labor." The average price of wage labor is the minimum wage, i.e. that quantum of the means of subsistence, which is absolutely requisite to keep the laborer in bare existence as a laborer. Okay, so like I just said, yeah. So he continues, uh, what therefore the wage laborer appropriates by means of his labor merely suffices to prolong and reproduce a bare existence. And this is what we were talking about before with he's he's almost imagining like too low a floor for reality. Yeah, yeah. And he continues, we by no means intend to abolish this personal appropriation of the productions of labor, an appropriation that is made for the maintenance and reproduction of human life, and that leaves no surplus wherewith to command the labor of others. All that we want to do away with is the miserable character of this appropriation under which the laborer lives merely to increase capital and is allowed to live only insofar as the interest of the ruling class required it. Okay, what is he saying with that last part? Because he's saying, we want to deal away with the miserable character of that appropriation under which you you just, you exist in that recurring cycle. Like I just said, you only make enough so that you have to come back the next day, but you're able to have a, a comfortable enough life that you don't revolt. Yeah, so basically, so there's the key line is, we by no means intend to abolish yes. this personal appropriation of the products of labor, right? So you're imagining this would be like the sword the artist, example. He's yeah, he's still yeah. You know, he's still addressing the artisan. He's like, if you've heard that communists are going to take your sword, it's like no, yes. it's yes. only the aspect of like the labor that has been appropriated from you. Mm-hmm. Like you get it back. It's not like it's being taken again. Okay, now, so is it advocating- materialized physically is different, but. So what is he actually, what's he saying in the positive dimension then? Is he, is he actually advocating that we just go back to like the craftsman age? No. Okay. He's so what, imag- what is he saying there? So he is basically imagining, oh, he hasn't put like laid down a, an overly yeah. positive like claim of what it would look like. He's saying 
the next stage will have the productive capacity that we have. We can't go back in productive capacity and sure. going back to artisans. That it's absurd. It right? would just destroy like, everything. Yeah. Once you realize that like a pin factory can produce 10,000 pins a day and a pin maker can produce two, you cannot go back. He's imagining you keep that productive capacity, but you remove this kind of bourgeois property. Exactly. You move the estrangement. Okay. And he's saying to the artisan, like you will not have like your, you know, the product of your labor estranged from you anymore, but you will still like, there will still be, you know, productive forces is kind of like underlying that. Okay. I'm very interested in how he thinks we can do that. (laughs) We're all interested in that. Yeah. It's his collective ownership that he gets into. Yeah. Which I guess I, I want to talk about that because I did not understand how that was supposed to do away with the estrangement, but, but, I don't know about the estrangement. Yeah, so but he isn't that the miserable labor of the appropriation. I mean, I, yeah, yeah I mean, but I, I think the idea there is that if people are collecting equally, you know, from the production overall, mm-hmm. like you still are, like, like you know, appropriating the production of your work. You know, maybe mm-hmm. a little more indirectly in the sense that, like, let's say you're producing boots. Yeah, and you know. Um, the boots collectively are owned by the people who produce them and you get whatever, you know, equal cut of the boots once they're sold. I mean, it might not be the boot you made that gets sold for the money that you're given. Right. Mm -hmm. But collectively you're part of that system. So yeah. Can we move on to the next page? I think it has like, it's getting there. Can we also skip the part about the, the family? I just didn't think that was that interesting. I'm sorry. Where's the family? That's hey, 23 still? No, no, I'm sorry, it's 24. I was a page ahead of you. Oh no, I I, I want to go to 24. I just don't know where the family exactly comes in. Oh, it's it's like 24. I was like abolition of the family. Like uh, this, this oh, is yeah, not... no, we don't need to address that. Okay. Point. Oh no, it's like kind of in the middle bottom. I see. Have you seen that uh, there's a guy out in California who um I think it was in the I forget the name of the San Francisco paper, but it might be the San Francisco Chronicle. He just uh, published an article, which might have been a week and a half ago, arguing for um universal you know um orphanage so that i've seen it wasn't that paper but i've seen an advocation for something very similar to that uh, yeah i mean i i thought it was worth noting just because like it's now yeah. being published in major papers like he's, yeah that's interesting yeah you're yeah, right so he's, there, he's there was a popular that. philosophy piece about that uh I didn't. Uh, the only yeah, reason no. why I just didn't think it was that germane to like this conversation. Yeah, to me, you know? it was yeah, kind yeah. of more of a political statement, like addressing the concerns of the audience, which we but don't it, have those it, concerns. So it's it, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, my biggest horror isn't that like some abstraction of the family is going to be lost here, right? Like, sure, sure. We, we have like you know 150 years of history after this. Um, but what I wanted to uh, draw to is like the second paragraph in 24. Um, communism deprives no man of the power to appropriate the products of society. All that it does is to deprive him of the power to subjugate the labor of others by means of such appropriations. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like where he's kind of addressing like what he means, like what he's trying to get at, like what is mm-hmm. it, what is he talking about and what is he mm-hmm. not talking about mm-hmm. as we were talking about just briefly. So that was kind of the conclusion of that point. Um, I had the next two sentences highlighted. He yeah, says it has been objected that upon the abolition of private property, all work will cease and universal laziness will overtake us. Mm -hmm. And then he begins to respond. 
According to this, bourgeois society ought long ago to have gone to the dogs through sheer idleness, for those of its members who work acquire nothing, and those who acquire anything do not work. Um, I, yeah, it was a clever point, but I, I actually don't know that he addressed like that kind of seemingly legitimate concern of like the... Yeah, I don't, I don't know, because it's like, okay, look, here's where I'm at right now with this. All the problems he points out are right, like both from a strange labor and this, but I don't know. It's also like, ah, I kind of like having, you know, like companies produce pharmaceuticals that are relatively cheap. Like I kind of like having clothes that are relatively cheap, but nice. Yeah, we like, I kind of like all these things. I yeah, don't know. No, do, doesn't the incentive because because right like here's here's the problem the incentive structure is a farce no one is actually gonna or the vast majority of people aren't gonna work their way out of that pauperism right even relative pauperism but don't we kind of need them to believe that in order to work like i, I don't know this, this is I, all I very it, paradoxical it, isn't he still talking about private property in the sense of though like capital in that sense though because he already said earlier mm-hmm. that he is not talking about like property that one might own yes. he's talking about so but, so in that I'm case about your hammer yeah yeah so so in this case right here so he's saying he's people saying, could still get rich but they wouldn't be able to like own means of production yeah so like according to this so bourgeois society so so capital owners mm-hmm. ought long ago to have gone to the dogs through sheer idleness mm-hmm. so the workers they acquire no property to increase production Yes. And those who acquire anything, so the bourgeois, um, so those who acquire property in order to, uh, you know, further production, they do not work. Um, it's not entirely true either. Yeah. yeah. He imagines like someone who literally sits in a chair and just watches, like just, just watches the, the stocks. Literally, yeah. literally reaps the benefits. Exactly. <laughs> like the reality <laughs> is, is like, if you're the owner, you're going to be working. It's just that, like that's the thing is like he has he makes very large untrue assumptions about like what it is now were they true at the time perhaps sometimes perhaps he could have come up with like a legitimate example like you know this is like the rent seeker like if you own property like you you can actually just sit down like like land i mean by property Mm -hmm. in this case like you can literally just sit and watch the benefits be reaped like someone pays you money to like you know rent the land you can literally stare at the wall and you just become wealthy if you have yeah. enough of it, right? Yeah. He's imagining that in all cases of kind of production, where in reality, we can imagine like the busy, like the super busy CEO, like the the kind of almost like- you Just go into completely... his office, he's just staring at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, don't interrupt. <laughs> Aggressive. Yeah, so like that's another, you know, instance where he either didn't foresee or he was willingly um, kind of ignorant to the reality. Yeah, he, he really does imagine the guy like the factory who's just like behind the door he's, like just open up his office he's like get back to work <laughs> or just like or, or like the classic quote like back to the mines exactly okay do we have any more okay go ahead i have a question okay mm-hmm. so people are allowed to become pe- people are allowed to to increase their private property, not means of production under, under what he's proposing. Correct. So like you can own, like you will own the product of your own labor and like the means of that he's suggesting, like, it's not that you won't own anything. He's not taking away the artisan's hammer. He's taking away your ability to get 
you know, the other, like the person under you's sword that he like was not produced by you. I, again, I guess, I'm trying to uh, pull this analogy, but he's, he's the re, the reality is he's not like specific enough. Like we have I like, genuinely don't concerns. understand. Here, here's my problem. Like I, I understand what he's saying. Theoretically, if you're like, put the like if, if you were like okay put what marx is saying into even like the most generalized policy prescriptions i have no idea what what to do there because like everything that i would do based on this conclusion he attacks as being that like petty petty socialism or whatever like yeah you like, know just re- like re- redistribution yeah yeah, yeah so but, but, i don't but, understand but I, what well, he's saying well, people, I mean, I'll just give you what people are saying today, right? Like people sure. are advocating for co-ops, which they think yes. is like, yes. you know, a producer um, co-ops. Yeah. Or yeah. So, so, it's, so I, I don't know too much about them, but I, yeah. from what I've kind of gleaned at this point, mm-hmm. you know, individuals are part owners in the company. So mm-hmm. uh, who do and, the laboring? And, yes. And, in the case of the you know, um, producer co-op. Wait, Adam, yeah, I do know a little bit about this. Real argument. quick, is it essentially, it, it, is it almost like the difference between the Green Bay Packers ownership and the rest of the NFL's ownership? Yes, I would say it's very similar to that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm understanding this correctly, it does seem like, doesn't that, okay, that, that seems to me like that either entails the keeping of the estrangement. It's just you make a lot more money because you also own you know stock in the company. Or doesn't it entail like a real, real loss of productivity? Like co-ops just don't. That's the thing. He's saying that it will be this way without actually. And to be fair, this is like a political document. So he's trying to draw in supporters, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is you're 100% right. Like it's hard for us to imagine like keeping the productivity without like the estrangement. Because even then, like it, what he's kind of getting at, like the the modern example of the co-op, it's still kind of an, an abstraction because there is yeah. a division of labor. It's you the have division to. Yeah. With any division of labor, which is kind of the, and I don't know if he recognized that at this point, he might've still um, got it backwards from Smith. Um, I don't know whether this, like Mark's writing this, thought that it was like the um, private property underwriting all this yet, which I think it is, or if it was like the um, uh, division of labor. Because Smith says basically once you recognize the division of labor that's where the kind of the productive forces can come into play yeah that, and marx marx yeah. is like trying to basically say like the estrangement that you know implicitly is coming from the division of labor can be abstracted away See, um, uh, but the productive productivity uh, can remain and it's like it's very hard uh, to imagine that because like if you're in a system with division of labor there's going to be some and estrangement only if it's because like it's hard to abstract the concept of your production even if it's just like yeah. just you it's very difficult to do that or in a system that doesn't have division of labor you don't have productivity yes you're, you're back to like yeah. you know the, the, the lone man like just you know sheer, you make your you grow your own wheat you grind your own grain like in which case why is it even a company at that it, point almost it's at like, that point well, no I'm, at that I'm point just, there's I'm, not a society <laughs> like, i mean well, i mean yeah. like i'm just wondering though like co-ops do exist right 100 percent yeah, and, kinds. And, and, and people are largely pretty happy in co-ops, and there are some that yes. have existed for decades, right? So they can't Absolutely. be productive, right? Oh, well, they can I be productive. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. the question we, is whether they can be like productivity, which more you switch is all competing, industry, yeah, to compete co-ops, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the the kind of system where you can imagine co-ops working, I'm a little bit more familiar with consumer co-ops actually, where like the people who like purchase, like imagine a grocery store cons- consumer co-op, right? You become a part owner. 
Um, and you can kind of have some say, you know, in the form of a vote or whatever, yeah. about like what things are grown or bought and mm-hmm. like supplied at the store. Um, like, yeah, like that, but it, it's only going to really work again. Like you can't reach the same productivity as like modern capitalism. Or if you do, only it's a niche. The estrangement is still there. Yeah, exactly. Like, bro, you can't yeah. have, you can't like solve both problems, the productive problem and the estrangement problem. It's like the, we can get like these kind of co-ops and they, they're actually very interesting economic topics. So I know a little bit about it, but not, mm-hmm. not as much as to satisfy you guys, I'm sure. But like, you can't like, it can operate in like a niche of like, kind of like, imagine like a kind of no, like chemical free vegan kind of, um, boutique almost grosser right you can actually get a co-op like structure working really well in that case right you have like a very like people genuinely interested in like the product that they're getting it's like but you can't get that model to work over the scale of a modern city it's absurd I Even almost feel like it relies on capitalism being the underlying it's almost <laughs> like parasitic on it because it's like oh you actually need people who are just like you kind of need <laughs> Well, but, but both yeah. wealthy, but also like the, that middle class popper almost. A hundred percent. You need the middle class popper, the one who has like money to spare and like time to dedicate towards like making decisions about like whether they want asparagus or Brussels sprouts. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is why I'm honestly like I'm I would describe myself right now as like a paradoxicalist about Marx because <laughs> because because like everything just terminates in a paradox, honestly, with this because it's like, OK. Is the state of the world good? No. Is any proposed way of solving it better? No. Like, what, what should we do? I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, can we get to this candy land where he describes where you can get like, you know, division of labor with no alienation, enormous productive capacities without any notion of private property? Like, it's so hard to imagine. And it is so tempting to imagine. Like, it's a million, like, you can, again, this is a political document, first and foremost. So you can like it's it's entailed by that is the fact that he's not going into like the theory you know right he wrote like capital like a an enormous tome where he puts theory but like like it it invokes sentiments but serious inquisition just it's it's not very satisfying it it, it is also, paradoxical on multiple ends. This also begins to conjure up aspects of like Plato's noble lie also where it's like the the entire <laughs> yeah, thing, the entire thing is kind of a facade. But because it's a facade, it works. Like you're referring to like Marx's proposals or like our capitalistic system. Uh, our capitalistic system. So his observation thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His it's like, oh, actually, you are just gonna live and die, like just ground up in the gears of like this for this system. <laughs> but it's like only through that can you even have that miserable life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reality. It's it really kind of does. It is. I mean, even just discussing this paper actually made me see how crucial like the kind of Hegelian philosophy is to this. It's like you have to kind of presuppose this grand arc, this kind of like we're going towards the something, right? Whatever that is. And with like without it, it falls to pieces. Because if you kind of just kind of view the world as like, you know, we're born into a place with no guidance, you know, it, there's no nothing preventing like even enormous shittiness like crashing upon us at any moment. It's like we've constructed a system which you know, it's better than viable, like any alternative, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we aren't manifesting the most efficient version of that, especially in the US. But like, 
or do we get enormous productivity? Do we get like a like a poverty that actually changes and betters itself, even if it's still poverty? Like, kind of, yeah. Honestly, gun to my head right now, if you're like, okay, you're philosopher king, you have to change the system in some way. It, like, Marx would be so disappointed in me because I'm still just going to be like <laughs> social democracy. <laughs> oh, he hates the social democrats. I know he hates them, <laughs> but but I don't understand how like, it just seems like right now that's our best idea of like what a good compromise is because I, I, I don't know. Like I don't understand how Marx and he never addresses <laughs> it is. this. He doesn't yeah. agree. He doesn't agree with like compromise in that sense. That's the thing. It's like, if, yeah. if you still, if you still live in a system and this is where I actually, um, I was thinking about this, Jordan, your, some of your claims earlier, um, you remember describing like the idea of the, the academic philosopher it's kind of like you kind of get rid of the alienation right yeah Problem, majorly yeah. marx i think would actually say to that like at least um 47 marx like you simply have like come to accept your chains you found bliss with your chains still on because like you don't own because you're underneath still that system right mm. i mean it's still you still in an abstract kind of product producing but you still are underneath like owners even if it's like a board of directors like he says like whatever like satisfaction you get is the satisfaction of a slave in his chain and i'm not joking like this is not no, my no, but it's like, like, like he literally would tell is... you that to his face i'm pretty sure no no but the, the, thing, the thing i was laughing at is like oh no you've just like justified jordan peterson's entire existence where he's like he's, like, he's, he's just this, like philosopher who's underneath no one just like making spurious claims and misquoting people <laughs> <laughs> and, and Marx would be like, that is the thief, like the non-estranged person in its entirety. <laughs> the only true man. <laughs> yeah. I, but I'm sorry. It just I couldn't help but laugh at that. No, no, no. I, I totally agree. But yeah, that again, we you, you can like, disagree about oh, whether Marx no. would agree with that claim, but I do think that that's what he would say is like, yeah, there is no compromise because the alienation is still there, the injustice of the appropriation of labor is still there but it's just mm-hmm. impossible for us to imagine like the same productivity like imagine yeah, like you that, just yeah. don't produce medicine anymore it's like that's a oh, hell upon hell yeah and it's also like dude medicine co- like pharmaceutical co-ops don't make any sense it's like <laughs> each person's like artisanly making just, <laughs> just, just like it doesn't make any sense is artisanal like um antibodies being produced it's like it's no. like artisanal monoclonal antibodies <laughs> just, just writhing <laughs> I, yeah. I think I think though like I don't I still don't think that's exactly what Marx is like advocating for like precisely like, I, I, well, no, I the co-op I, is just a the only sure. rationalization you can possibly make with his no, but, like but, contradictions but that's, what, but that's that's what that's what I mean though like I but but even the co-op like you're not imagining that like you know every single person is like you know <laughs> of course it's like you know it's, like, a strong like, it's like, not a group of artisans yeah, so exactly <laughs> so I mean I think the idea like, like the major critiques there would be like um I mean, what was the, uh, I'm kind of blanking at this hour at this point, but what was the uh, pharmaceutical company that was pumping out tons of Oxycontin? What was that again? I'm not sure. I, I, uh, I should know the name. There, was a, there were a couple companies, but yeah, the, uh, the whole. Well, it was one oh, major God. company. <laughs> I mean, like. What was your you, point with it? Well, you the point on. is like, okay, so in that system, right, you've got like a bunch of like hardworking scientists that are like, you know, developing methods to, you know, um, ultimately produce this drug, but you've got like a family making billions. Oh, it might've been yeah. like Merck actually. I think about it. 
maybe not, know. but but Regardless, either way, yeah, yeah. But, but you had like billions of dollars pretty much like going to like you know, um, to like this family, yeah. and you had like this higher up pretty much where you know, you know, your boss's boss might make 300,000, like the family behind the pharmaceutical co- company might you know, make a few billion dollars. It's like <laughs> the son of know. that heir is Ooh. definitely just sitting there reaping the benefits. But okay, yeah. here's my question so, so someone like, yeah. so like you know, who advocates for a co op might say, okay. You know, no family. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, it's just like in like the means of production at that point, like that would largely be owned yes. by the workers. It would be owned by the scientists. I have, I have a question. Then. And, mm-hmm. Okay. This might be a really stupid question. I'm not seeing the way out of it, but here, here it is. Okay. Cause I was thinking about that too. And it's like, okay. So he's identified the problem like you just said of all of these people are doing actual work and then the majority of their profit just gets taken by the owning family right Mm -hmm. okay nix the owning family and then their share of the company gets redistributed to the actual people of the company right okay i okay this is just my like intuition so i don't this could be a stupid question but it's not i'm sure that seems to me like it's going to result in just the as the company kind of profits instead of the profits going to the, the people the owners it's going to go to the people of the company right sure doesn't doesn't that then it's almost like that that blows up that noble lie of like of the part of capitalism that he said was so terrible but it works is that you pay people enough so that they can't really leave but they're not going to like revolt and they just come back the next day if people are actually profiting in that way isn't it going to like remove their incentive to actually kind of do the work work defined in the Bertrand Russell episode where it was like stuff that you wouldn't Wouldn't do unless you, yeah. Like doesn't it kind of bite its own tail in that sense? Um, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure I even understood that. I'm sorry. I think I get what you're saying, but I was going to tie it to alienation. I thought you were going to do that, but Um, that was the, that's the other side of the coin. Yeah. That's the coin I was predicting. You could go well, that, that I don't know how you get out of that problem either, but like, uh, okay, so okay, billions are going to like the owning families right now, yeah, right? Sure, you change that, and then their share is evenly divided between the, the people of the company, right? Right, so then as the, pro- the, the, as the company profits, all of the individuals are going to profit, right? Mm-hmm. But everyone's still doing their same jobs, it kind of seems like. So, the people who are doing shit jobs that they don't want to do, who are still estranged, if they're profiting. Why wouldn't they just next cease to work then? Well, here's the thing. This this is well, what I was they, expecting. They're part to get of the company, to. right? Like they would need to continue working as part of the company to reap the profits of the company. But, uh, but but what I'm saying is that if they're actually reaping the profits, I, I don't know. So so maybe I guess the claim is that they just they wouldn't be reaping enough profits so that they could quit. It's just like a. Like what, what I'm saying is like, if you don't like your job, like if you don't, if you wouldn't intrinsically do it. Yeah. Right. Because at the, at the company, yeah, no, there's I, still I gotta be just like a cleanup crew or something like I, for the, you know, I think sure. I can address your point. Okay. Um, so you basically identify like the, the cleanup crew that would be doing, you know, work in the Bertrand Russell sense. Right. Yeah. In this system that seemingly addresses Marx's problems. Right. Yeah. Okay. So basically what I would say to that is it depends on like our, the way we're using the term alienation 
mm-hmm. right? Because that's kind of where he identifies the problem, right? It's like an artisanal. But the thing gender. is, like, he said, this is part of the last episode. One of the biggest problems I had with it is you can imagine a like kind of colloquial sense of alienation that is still entailed by any like of the you know Bertrand style work mm-hmm. or just like um, kind of just labor in general. But Marx is saying specifically, like, his alienation is the estrangement of like primarily <sighs> your bait and switch. It, well, it's a bit of a bait and switch then because he it either about, is yeah. or he doesn't he's not clear enough with like which sure he's referring sure. to. I mean, it's it probably both like at times. Right. Because it's yeah. a bit, again, it's a political doc. This specifically is a political document. It's easy to kind of say, like, invoke the alienation without kind of like strictly laying out that he means like, you know, between like, the production, like the product of labor and like the laborer. Yeah. But like, it, it, again, it, it butts a accepting that then butts against the notion of like well the division of labor is still like alienating in a sense just mm. like not in like emotionally like socially it, just well, not it wouldn't be in the it, sense it wouldn't be alienating in terms of in terms of property but it would still be alienating in terms of this is not something that you kind of intrinsically want to do and right. you still don't seem like you would be able to kind of partake in the whole process then Oh yeah, no. So that yeah. if that's what he means by alienation, then it's inconsistent entirely. But mm. I think what he's saying is like he addresses like the problem of alienation as being that particular type of alienation. And so whenever he like solves the problem, like you can still imagine this being in that scenario. It's like well, it feels alienating in a you know casual sense, right? Like any division of labor is going to entail some sort of like abstraction okay. of like your labor, right? I have, and I have a question. Where it? <laughs> okay, you can wave a magic wand and. <clears throat> Uh, change the structure of companies right now such that you actually do strip the like you know ownership the ownership of the means of production like the pure profiteering Mm -hmm. split that evenly and then redistribute it in stock to all of the people working at the company Mm -hmm. that alone so we're not going to change the productivity aspects of it we're not going to change, you know, like the alienation aspects of it. Would you do that right now or not? Probably for a lot of companies, yeah. Assuming yeah. productivity stays the same, like that's the no, kind of that my... well, that's that's the big question. But oh, like, I thought that you were saying like that included, and I oh. thought your your point was about the alienation. I mean, if if the production, I was just saying like everyone's doing the same jobs and everything. It's not like the the, the nature of the jobs is changing. Oh, or anything like oh, that. then yeah. then I can cite the lack of productivity as like my reason to deny, right? Yeah, yeah, you're able to. Oh, hundred percent. I, I. Okay, I mean, so you wouldn't so, do it then. No, and can okay. I clarify first? And, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, basically, I think part of the what is entailed by the kind of system is not only like reaping some of the profits, but also partial decision making, even democratically in a co-op, right? Like, and I think that is kind of where you get like. It is very hard for me to imagine. Like, there is a utility to the hierarchy, Wait, but that's actually of, not entailed. I don't think that what entailed in my question was the democracy democratic aspect of it because you could still have someone actually making decisions for the company like the ceo essentially okay but they're not going to have like that kind of inflated uh, it's only the profit change yeah okay i see what you're saying and is there's so there's still a pay differential yeah okay um okay thanks for clarifying that was good um because I actually think the answer might be yes for a lot of companies for me too. Because I don't know that I would. It's okay. It My just re- depends on the company, right? I mean, just yeah. think of like like the corruption we just talked about, like with pharmaceutical companies. It's yeah. like 
I mean, clearly there were like perverse motives there that just convinced like a family to, you know, to make billions. I, I just like, do you think there would still be like that? I mean, I, I kind of viewed it, you know, um, democratically from like at least my perspective when I said yes. But even where, if you weren't, like, okay. Uh, no, but, but, but let yeah, me yeah. finish this statement though. But like the way I kind of viewed it was like, just, you know, if you've got like 10,000 scientists working for like a pharmaceutical company, I would think they would have like a little more honor than somebody at the top who's yeah. just like sitting there like reap profit has like no real has like no real understanding yes. of like the science at play or you know like the potential like health consequences but are just these numbers to, like, yeah plan. so so I think uh, like it, it would depend like on on the company obviously of but course. but yeah. yeah for something like that I can definitely imagine like seeing yeah that. yeah. That's yeah, fair. I, I just don't know what the like honestly if you think about it like what the fuck are those people actually adding to society K- kind of not much like wouldn't yeah, so it, wouldn't it actually be way better if just like everyone's lives were improved <laughs> <laughs> kind of hard to deny no. that <laughs> <laughs> exactly like i pose that to you what, given what, <laughs> oh um basically i think my comment is what makes it difficult in that system is if we're saying make some of like companies, you know, form that construct, then I think it kind of collapses because it's I, very I said, hard I to imagine. Wave it and all of them would be Adam said some. Okay, yeah, that's exactly the thing. It's like I think it is an all or nothing. I don't think. Oh, I mean, okay. I, I do. I can imagine like for some companies it could work, but I do see like, and for me, it's partly because it is work for a lot of these people. And like, if you're going to be less productive, less efficient in this system, which I do kind of think is likely, if not necessary, um, I do think then if you're going to be doing like work in the Russell sense, you're going to be doing the more profitable work, which means you're going to probably like if you're in the, one of the higher ups or like, you know, have some control, like in that sense, yeah. you're probably going to move to where you can get more money. If you're going to be doing like, you know, things you wouldn't do otherwise, like regardless, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it is an all or nothing. And I think between the all or the nothing, I choose the nothing. <laughs> Clip Giffen denies the poppers. <laughs> just, just that, just the last clause there. I choose the nothing. <laughs> I choose the nothing. What do you mean by that? I chose the nothing already. I chose the nothing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I, don't, I don't know if that was coherent, but that's kind of like my inclination, at least, to that question. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I think the logic follows that you that you put out there. I mean, I just wonder if like uh, you were able to do it, um, maybe it's like a specific industry because there would be like yeah. uh, less movement that's true. Be- like between like individuals. Like, if you, oh, you know, that's if you're, a very good point. Like, actually, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, like, like yeah. based like the pharmaceutical example. Like, it's not like you're going to be a scientist. Like, if you're skilled okay, labor, that works. If you're not skilled labor, if you're going to be like moving garbage cans, you can go to any industry, right? But for like the science. Wait, but wouldn't you actually want to be in the industry of of redistribution? Who's who's you? Yeah, the unskilled. unskilled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The unskilled. They're all going to flock to the uh, redistribution. Oh, companies, um, right? Well, that depends on like because the profits that you reap. Because imagine in this case, like we've been talking about profits, but Mm -hmm. you also reap the losses. You know, if you're not productive enough. Yeah. So in that case, it's like entail. Like what? what That's I the mean, thing the company is, goes under, but like, I don't know. What does that like actually entail? Uh, it's one I, thing that's hard to imagine. Like, yeah, we have we are pretty well ingrained, like 
to the notion of like kind of like a limited liability corporation, which kind of you know yeah. comes from property. So it's like it's hard for <laughs> everyone. Us to just walks that. away clean from like the burning plane. But <laughs> 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 that's exactly the point. Like especially when it comes to anything that requires, and this is another thing that Mark didn't foresee is like the idea of skilled labor. He imagined everyone was just someone like you crank a wheel. Like there's there's no like yeah. intelligent like you know scientist which is kind of abstracted in his world it's yeah like everyone's yeah everyone's turning the dial and if you can't turn the dial like the person to your left you just die <laughs> <laughs> like i'm not joking he says that <laughs> only in so far as like the you know productive classes deem you worthy to live yeah so i i, I think we're sort of getting at the point of our productivity speaking of at least i know i am i yeah, yeah. i think that this honestly this for me is ending in a bit of aporia you know that greek word for for kind of confusion i mean if in a good way though i mean if i understand marx in a way that i think is you know productive i still don't know entirely what i think about him which is you know it's not a bad thing but (laughs) i i would i would put a lot of claim in the stake or the stake in the claim that if you've listened to this you understand marx better than peterson does (laughs) oh but by our first comment we had surpassed him Imagine thinking that, you know, he in that in that video that I sent you guys that debate, he was like, "There's not." He was like, "I've I haven't read a book less intelligible than this or something." Like he had, like, "Come on, man! Like, where's the charitability? Like, you don't have to agree with Marx, but like, really, you haven't read a text that's riddled with more falsehoods or whatever." This, like, come on, no, it's impossible. Like, <laughs> you're not being intellectually honest. Like, no. we sat down and we just like, you know looked at inferences that we could make we looked at you know assumptions that he made that we disagree with or yes. contradictions or paradoxes like yes. that was where we got it not like ideas are mostly wrong therefore <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and like worst of all was like the context of that because like you know that he was like discussing with like Zizek right yep, yep. but so like it was a discussion of like Marxism and there's been like you know 160 180 years now of like you know uh literature since you know, like this pamphlet was published and like if instead it's a political pamphlet mm, so it's called so, arms yeah so it's pretty funny like when debating like an economic system <laughs> like in a political system of like there's been like development like you know 200 years worth of literature you arrive with like a political pamphlet having read it and it's just like <laughs> dude you shouldn't be on this stage what's wrong with you <laughs> yes. it's it's, it's yeah. almost like uh discussing like the reactive attitudes or no, no, even worse than that. It's almost like discussing like restorative justice, but then only having read like a <laughs> Christie paper. <laughs> you show exactly up and it's, just, it. and it's yes. like, yeah, but yeah, I mean, there's no dogmatism. Like he's not the final word. Like it's the ideas that like are carried through. Exactly. Like you can yeah. read, you can read a paper published in 2022, which entails some particular like yeah. nature aspect. Um, and you know, you can't just pull up conflict as property and no. make like ridiculous claims. It also That's betrays good. his motives too. His motives were to smear and win the fight, not not to actually just engage in the argument. Yeah, not even in. The- he attacked the psychology of Marx and Engels. Like he literally argued from the ad hominem. He's like, oh, just just to- ask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly. <laughs> Truly. All right. Well, let's let's formally wrap this episode up. Um, I don't think we'll have any. I don't, I don't think that our. I don't think that this podcast garners a lot of Peterson fandom, but we've surely eschewed it. <laughs> <to this episode. laughs> 
two non-overlapping circles at this point. If it was ever here, yeah. Um, all right, well, tune in next time for Unknown, whatever we'll be talking about. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Plato's Cave. Um, I always enjoy discussing topics with uh, with these two guys. So if you want to um, support the show in any way, you can do so simply by sharing it. Uh, I'm hoping to get this show out to more people. Uh, and so if you want to share it on Twitter or social media, that would really help me. Uh, you can also rate it on Apple Podcasts. Uh, like this video if you're watching on YouTube, or subscribe uh, via Apple Podcasts or an RSS feed. Uh, you can also discuss it on your own show and link back uh, to my website, or you can connect me uh, with recommended guests or topics to cover. Uh, you can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And I now have a website for my philosophy endeavors at jordanmyers.org. If you want to know a little bit more about me and my fellow co-hosts, as I said in the introduction, I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Houston. I did my undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh, where I studied mechanical engineering and philosophy. And now that I'm back at school, I'm hoping to more closely study uh, moral responsibility, free will, ethics, epistemology, and moral psychology. Those are topics that I was uh, introduced to and got really interested in in my undergrad work. So uh, Adam and Giffen accompanied me on this show, and Adam is uh, one of my oldest friends. We actually met in kindergarten, um, and we've been interested in philosophical topics for as long as we can remember, and in a lot of ways, it's been the basis of our friendship. Uh, Adam studied chemistry and biology at Cornell, and he is currently working at a law firm. Um, And he's especially interested in moral responsibility as well, but also law, religion, and free will. Uh, Giffen is also one of my oldest friends, and uh, we've been friends since elementary school as well. Um, Giffen studied biology and economics at RPI, and now he works in human health research. Uh, He believes that there's very interesting overlap between both of his fields of study and philosophy, and he's particularly interested in exploring political philosophy. So this series was right up his alley. Um, And with, uh, with all of that information, again, I hope that you enjoyed uh, this episode, and I hope that you get in contact with me or, or follow my work in any way that you uh, deem reasonable to do. So with that, thank you for listening.